Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Matt Rojansky, uh, director here at the Kennan Institute. Um, we're very honored to be able to host former Kennan Institute director, uh, Dr. Peter Redaway, uh, and to launch his new book, The Dissidents, uh, a beautiful book, which is, of course, for sale outside the room. Uh, and Peter has graciously agreed to sign copies uh, after the event. Um, I, I want to note, because it's my job, and uh, I'll probably get fired if I don't, that the Wilson Center was recently recognized as among the top 10 think tanks in the world. Um, but in particular, it's, it is actually a special pleasure for me to underscore that for the third year in a row, uh, we were recognized by our peers in the so-called uh, think tank ratings from the University of Pennsylvania as number one in the world for regional studies. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, speaks for itself, right? That's what we do at Kennan, and uh, I think Peter will recognize and agree that that success is built on a foundation that he helped to lay uh, when he was director uh, of what is still the oldest and largest regional program here at the center. Um, I'd note that Blair Rubel, uh, another former director, my predecessor, is here with us. Um, and thanks to Peter and Blair's work and, and that of uh, others uh, who've helped lead the Kennan Institute, um, we have a national international reputation, uh, which is focused quite differently, I think, than pretty much any other think tank program uh, on Russia and Eurasia uh, by cherishing historical, cultural, social, uh, and political context for developments, and not only the news of the day, not only what you could read, uh, or nowadays more accurately hear from talking heads on cable television. Um, but let me single out Peter and his contributions to the field more broadly. Um, so he led the Kennan Institute from 1985 to 1988, and for anyone with even a passing familiarity with the history of the Soviet Union, you know what years of tremendous import and tumult those were. Um, there was a great expansion during that time, uh, very much to our benefit of scholarly contact and exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union, and under Peter's leadership, uh, I'm grateful to this day to say that the Kennan Institute uh, successfully reached and integrated scholars, uh, as well as non-academics from the region across the region, in fact, not only Moscow uh, and the Academies of Sciences, but, uh, but truly across the former Soviet Union uh, into its activities, lectures, seminars, and conferences, uh, as well as actually hosting scholars in residence, something that we proudly continue to do to this day. Um, Peter recognized the value of the Kennan Institute as a unique entity for the Russian scholarly community and propelled it uh, to serve as a crossroads for specialists from Russia uh, and neighboring states to the West. In his own scholarship, Peter has worked to elevate the voices of Soviet dissidents in their writings since the 1960s. In 1969, he co-founded the Alexander Herzen Foundation with historian uh, Jan Willem Besmer and Karl Van Hetriv. I studied Russian, not Dutch, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Reva. Reva, there we go, okay. Uh, he published numerous articles and books uh, about that topic, including Uncensored Russia, the Human Rights Movement in the Soviet Union, 1972, uh, Psychiatric Terror, How Soviet Psychiatry is Used to Suppress Dissent in 1977, and Soviet Psychiatric Abuse in 1984. Uh, this book is a capstone to his singular contributions to the field and his years of research, uh, and is full of, I think, fascinating personal narrative, which my wonderful colleague, Kennan Institute Deputy Director Will Pomerantz, will elicit along with much else uh, in discussion. And so I hand the floor over to Will and to Peter with great appreciation. Thank you both. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Matt. And I think we're just going we to will now just move. awkwardly move the podium. Out exactly, of the way. and we're going to move right. Actually, actually, let me tr see how long I can manage on my feet. Okay. And then right. we'll okay. move if 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 I if I find I can't. Okay. Sorry to be dithery. <laughs> Want me to go ahead? We'll All right. ready to get started. There we go. Well, I'm sorry to be dithery about whether to deliver this talk in a chair or standing, but uh, I think we'll try standing, and if I get worn out, I'll sit down. Um, well, these memoirs that um, I've written concern my involvements with the USSR and various Russians from 19... 58 until the collapse of the country in 1991. The underlying thesis derives from two main observations. First, I was struck in the early 1960s by the strictness of the official ban in public life on any ideas other than those of Marxism-Leninism. And second, during my first three visits to the USSR at that time, Mm, sorry, I lost my way here. I observed quite a lot of Russians did not like the ban and tried in small but determined ways to get around it. This conflict, I concluded, meant that the communist regime was weaker than it looked, was rigid in its ways and in its structure, would not therefore be able to evolve in a stable way, and would eventually collapse. The first time that I expressed this analysis in writing was in a feature article in the Times of London in 1967. By that time, the analysis had been strengthened by the appearance in the mid-1960s of the first strong public expressions of dissent. These took the form of dissident writings circulated in typescript from hand to hand and known as let me start. Thank you very much. I will occasionally ask for your input. <laughs> um, <laughs> and small protest demonstrations in public squares. Although the secret police or KGB tried hard to suppress these developments by arresting the organizers and dispatching them to labor camps or mental hospitals, their efforts only provoked an increase in the number of demonstrations and Samizdat documents. Well, why did I go beyond just making this analysis? Well, I soon wanted to experience the Soviet Union at first hand, not surprisingly. So in 1960 and 61, I went on trips by car to that country with other students. The first year, the cost was remarkably small because before leaving, we bought a generous supply of rubles from a London company at knockdown prices. This was thanks to the ruble theoretically being unconvertible and banned from either entering or leaving Russia. It soon turned out 
that the official exchange rate would, if we had had to use it, have given us less than one-fifth as many rubles as the London company provided. A rather remarkable difference, five times. The next year, however, everything had changed. Black market trading in rubles in the USSR had been turned into a capital offense, and two traders had already been executed. The results of all this were that the London company was no longer in the business. In Leningrad, the few traders left would only super furtively give twice the official exchange rate. And in Moscow, we simply couldn't find any traders at all although we did find that Western clothes sold well. But the cost of the trip was way above the cost of 1960. In 1961, our route included a swing south to Georgia behind the Caucasus Mountains. Here in the capital of Tbilisi, and just if anybody's not sure about how to spell any of the stranger names that I'm going to pronounce there on the board, um, here in the capital Tbilisi, we had been told not to fail to dine at a first-class restaurant that sat on a high hill on the edge of the city. So we booked a table through the uh, in-tourist travel agency on a balcony that was said to command spectacular views of Tbilisi. When we arrived at the appointed hour, the manager told us that he had no reservation for us, and we could only have an inside table. Our anger over this obvious lie left him indifferent. He had evidently been bribed to give our table to somebody else. We would have to wait for a balcony table to come free, he said. At this, we sulked and had to wait for an hour to get even an inside table. To rub it all in, the waiter then told us that all the dishes and wines that we had selected were allegedly, what do you think? Not available. Thank you. <laughs> At this low point, a burly Georgian suddenly came over from a neighboring table and silently plunked down for us, what do you think? Two bottles of champagne. Very good. Hardly believing our luck, we opened the bottles and went over to his table to toast its six inhabitants. In no time, the burly guy had joined our tables together. We were introducing each other, and their waiter said that all the dishes and wines we had tried to order earlier were, in fact, available. Thank you. <laughs> Keep it up. You're doing well. <laughs> Many toasts were proposed, with the burly guy proclaiming loudly at each of his turns, Georgia, Yes! Russia, no. And then spitting. England, yes! Russia, no. I lived in England at this time. And capitalism, yes! Communism, yeah. The whole restaurant looked on approvingly. At the end of the evening, 12 empty bottles lay on the floor, and our new Georgian friends refused to let us pay a ruble toward the bill. At Harvard in 1962-3, I spent a year studying 20th century Russia under some names that will be familiar to 
m many of you, Mel Feinsword, Adam Ulam, Abram Bergson, among others, and listening to eminent visiting speakers. The now well-known journalist Marvin Kalb, for example, recounted to a seminar group a revealing story about Soviet officialdom. When he arrived in Moscow at the beginning of a two-year assignment in 1960, he was invited to visit the official responsible for Western journalists. After explaining that Kalb should be guided in his reporting by the principles of this one's harder, socialist realism. When you write, it's socialist realism. The official took him to a window overlooking Red Square. Here he pointed to an old woman brushing snow and depositing it in a cart. His commentary was, Socialist realism decrees that for your purposes she does not exist, because that form of manual labor belongs to the past and will soon disappear. Socialist realism is about the future, i.e. what we are building today. That is the subject we expect you too to write about. Well, Marvin Kalb didn't pay much attention, I'm glad to say. For the 1963-4 academic year, I was given a scholarship to study as a graduate student at Moscow University. I lived in a vast building that is probably familiar to some of you, with 18 stories and 7,000 inhabitants. My room was on the 12th floor. Our part of the building was supposedly served by four elevators, <laughs> but always two or three of them were out of service. This meant that the remaining one or two were in tremendous demand. As a result, an informal but super strict rule laid down that to make life bearable for those who lived on the higher floors, these elevators could not be used by people living on the lower floors. If any such person tried to break the rule, angry shouts would at once break out to the sixth floor only on foot. <laughs> Political jokes spread by word of mouth were and are important in Russia. One I was told in 1963 concerned a visit to an exhibition of modern art by the country's leader, Mr. Khrushchev. Dispensing dismissive zingers about most of the pictures, he queried his assistants at one point, what on earth could that asinine figure be supposed to represent? The answer came back, but that isn't a picture, Mr. Khrushchev. It's a mirror. mirror. <laughs> <laughs> to return to reality, because that was just a story. In 1963, a group of African students studying in Russia decided to organize a demonstration of protest on Moscow's Red Square against the increasing racial harassment to which they were subjected. On the appointed day, 400 of them unfurled their banners, including one that demanded stop killing Africans, handed their literature to foreign correspondents who had been specially alerted, and then marched towards an entrance to the Kremlin. Caught completely off guard, the many KGB agents on Red Square were slow to figure out what was happening 
and then to disperse what was the first demonstration held there since blank staged one in blank. Brodsky, 1927. So there had been no demonstration there for almost 40 years. But how had the Africans pulled off such a feat? As my Cameroonian friend told me, they had conducted all the preparations by phone, speaking in blank languages. Trib tribal, tribal, tribal. KGB knows some of the main African languages, but not, not the tribal ones. The KGB had listened in, but had not understood. The most important aspect of the eight months I spent in Moscow in 1963 to four was getting to know personally a variety of ordinary Russians. I was fortunate in being able to do this in a natural way through meeting people, mostly by chance, and developing friendships. A special case was that of Natalia Yevtenieva and her nephew Valeri, who lived with her during the academic year. Here's her name. She generously and frequently invited me to large, tasty meals and lengthy, relaxed conversations. One day she told me that political anecdotes, anecdotes, had been produced continuously throughout Soviet times in reaction to the strict official censorship. Her husband had collected them in a notebook, which, during the height of Stalin's terror, they had reluctantly burned out of caution. On occasion, Natalia would tell me a bit about her dealings with her special department, Spetsadil, i.e. the KGB office in the Language Institute where she taught. They knew that she went to great lengths to avoid any sort of <coughs> official communist politics during her work, and they were not happy about it. When she introduced me to a nice group of her students, they ironically egged me on to become a Soviet citizen. They mocked officialdom's questionnaires and regretted that I would not be able, as a Soviet citizen, to read Freud, who was banned in the USSR, where huge interests surrounded his name, nor would I be able to attend exhibitions of abstract art, which were likewise normally banned. During late night walks with another good friend, Boris Kudashov, a beginning doctor, he said he felt that the West tended to overestimate the Soviet intelligentsia's desire for more intellectual freedom, which could not realistically be achieved, and it underestimated the desire for greater freedom of action as consumer, traveler, profession holder, and therefore for greater economic efficiency. The present economic system in all spheres except heavy industry seemed increasingly inappropriate. It was just not geared to the consumer society that most people wanted. In these circumstances, Boris said, good Western radio broadcasts were becoming more important than ever. They should focus mainly on detailed refutations of official Soviet statements, particularly on economic issues. Among the new friends I became close, close to was Svetlana Simeonova. In 1963, 
uh, Svetlana and I dated for a few months with her teaching me much about Russian literature and philosophy. Daughter of a general in eastern Siberia, she was a kind, sensitive person uh, who had no time for communism or the Soviet regime and rightly took it for granted that the same was true about me. She confided that the KGB had called her in to ask her about me, but she had succeeded in brushing them off by saying that I was interested in Soviet culture, and that was why we became friends. What I shall never forget is the occasion on which the mother of a friend of Svetlana's was cautiously introduced to me. She was about 50, but looked 75, and had been released from a concentration camp in the late 1950s after a long imprisonment on a fabricated charge of anti-Sovietism. This experience had shattered her. She could only just walk. Uh, in general, she didn't want to talk to people, and she just stayed in her room all day, staring out of the window. She talked very little to me, slowly and quietly, without affect, and apparently with some difficulty. She was as pleasant as she could be, but nothing of substance emerged. I said little, and after five minutes, it was all over. Her life had been destroyed. In May 1964, I was suddenly expelled from the USSR uh, on a trumped-up charge. The British Embassy protested on my behalf, but when that uh, protest met with rejection, I had to leave. My shock over being expelled was lessened by the fact that I had always regarded this as a real possibility. But the belief that my career might be affected by the likelihood that the Kremlin would not allow me back until many moons had passed disturbed me not a little. However, a couple of years later, I began to see that my expellee status had a certain compensating advantage. I could write freely about dissent without having to temper my views to avoid being put on a Soviet blacklist regarding visas. Why was I on that? I was already on it because of having been expelled. Thus began my new status, which was to last until 1988. The early 60s determined the future outline of my career. First, I became committed to studying the history and politics of the Soviet Union, and this led to my writing my first academic article on various aspects of the ouster of Khrushchev in October 64. And second, an ingrown interest in issues of human rights began to emerge in parallel to that commitment. In less abstract terms, the ways in which the Soviet system denied human rights to its citizens, yet left open a few gaps in which the more thoughtful people could exercise some minimal freedoms intrigued me. I wanted to understand how this came about and how the various parts of the system worked. I also wanted to be useful to any Soviet citizen who might seek my help, and I didn't need to worry about any resulting Soviet anger. Finally, I had some outstanding role models to guide me, whom I already knew personally. These were my colleague at the London School of Economics, Leonard Shapiro, 
and the specialists in unofficial Russian culture, Max Hayward, Manya Harari, and Patricia Blake, about whom I write in my memoirs. In April 1968, I got a phone call at the LSE, London School of Economics, where I was an assistant professor from the Russian service of the BBC. The political commentator had asked me to come across the street to his office. Here he said that he had just received a big envelope for me from the BBC's Moscow correspondent. He handed it over and I took it back to my office. On opening it, I found a short personal note from the physicist Pavel Litvinov, whom I had never met but knew about from his dissident public activity. He had evidently listened to some of my journalistic articles being summarized on the BBC and decided I would be a suitable recipient for the enclosure. This turned out to be a typewritten document of some 15 pages in Russian with the title Go for it. Chronica Ticusis Bautiti, of course. <laughs> chronicle of Current Events, uh, referred to as the Chronicle. But no editor was named. Page 1 quoted Article 19 of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which reads, Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. The quotation also appeared in every one of the 63 subsequent issues of the Chronicle in the years 1968 to 1983, during which this Samis Dow journal provided the, the written backbone of the human rights movement. I should add that from number 16 on, it was published by Amnesty International. And uh, as time went on, it got bigger and bigger. And the later issues were 150, 200 pages. Its editors were also guided by Alexander Yassin Voipin's, quote, legalist understanding of how citizens should view Soviet law. They should take the extensive rights granted in the Soviet constitution seriously and for themselves and hold the Soviet authorities to doing the same thing. So Soviet authorities were supposed to respect human rights. The contents of the first issue of the Chronicle featured some two dozen accounts of recent episodes about the violation of human rights in a variety of fields. The violations had occurred in Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev, Novosibirsk, and the forced labor camps in Mordovia. These camps held many political and religious prisoners. The language of the Chronicle was restrained and factual throughout. Encouraged by this episode, from the late 60s onwards, I started writing occasional articles in the British press, mostly the Times and the Observer, about the latest documents of dissent from the USSR. Later, in 1968, came the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, which provoked numerous protests among Soviet dissidents, including a dramatic protest uh, demonstration on Moscow's Red Square by eight of them. 
This in turn provoked a political trial of five of the demonstrators, followed by a widely read book about the kangaroo court that sentenced them, written by a sixth protester, Natalia Gorbanyovskaya. Long and complicated name, uh, third and second column. Two, I mentioned, m slip in here, the two early and major activists in publicizing and writing about human rights issues were the worker Anatoly Marchenko and the former military general Pyotr Griganenko. My memoirs devote a chapter to describing their work and, fate, and their fates. Marchenko was killed in a, in a labor camp. But the most innovative of my articles in the late 1970 to early 1971 period described in detail for the first time the complex of 14 forced labor camps strung out along a 30-mile railway line uh, of the Internal Affairs Ministry in the Mordovian Republic. This was accompanied, the article was accompanied by the texts of protests, a detailed map of this railway line, and compelling sketch, sketches by the artist Yuri Ivanov of political prisoners held with him in those camps. A little later, in 19, 1972, my book Uncensored Russia appeared, containing the full translations of numbers 1 through 11 of the Chronicle, plus my extensive commentaries and over 70 photographs. This evoked numerous positive reviews in the media. Only a year earlier, however, some Western intellectuals had still felt that Soviet dissidents were suspicious characters of dubious authenticity. They had, they had supposedly been invented by emigres or by MI6 or the CIA and didn't actually exist. One of these intellectuals was the well-known literary critic Dan Jones, who in 1970-71 conducted furious and lengthy polemics against a variety of well-qualified authors who criticized him for holding this view that dissidents didn't exist. Jones's principal target was the distinguished Russian writer and historian Andrei Amalrik, who had currently been arrested and sentenced for his dissent for the second time in five years. Jones's review starts, two of these books out of the five he was reviewing, are allegedly written by one, quote, Andrei Amalric, as exposures of the failings of the, Soviet, of the Soviet Union. However, anyone used to reading novels will recognize the vein of solemn-faced self-parody and self-exposure, comparable with the picaresque satires of Thackeray and Thomas Mann. The books are deliberate parodies of anti-communist propaganda, malicious satires on dissident Soviet writers. We have Amalric cheating and lying and fiddling, portrayed as a rogue and a layabout. The book is the autobiography of a rat. How can Max Hayward come to write a perfectly serious forward to this parody as if it were a genuine undoctored memoir? How has anyone been able to take all this nonsense seriously? Unst as Ten Letters Against Jones appeared in turn, denouncing him, in five journals, he refused to budge a single inch until, at the very end, he was forced at least to concede that Amarik did 
after all, exist. Thank you very much. Important in countering the Dan Joneses and providing understanding of the new perspective on Soviet affairs afforded by the emergence of dissent was the Dutch professor Karel van Hedrever on the board. During an academic year spent as a journalist in Moscow in 67-68, he had become friends with some key dissidents. On his return to the West, he set about convincing people that the human rights movement was genuine and important. In this regard, personality was probably decisive. Even the deepest skeptic, the sincerest, quote, friend of the Soviet Union, the most craven academic, could not but be affected by Karol's honesty, straightforwardness, transparency, self-deprecation, and wit. In short, by his integrity and shy charm. Such a person simply could not be lying, embellishing, or distorting. Nonetheless, this view turned out to be naive. My favorite letter from Carl ended like this. Quote, I just got some nice letters threatening that I will be executed by the Marxist-Leninist Center in Amsterdam. I hope to see you before then. <laughs> Greetings, Carl. Unsurprisingly, the Kremlin was not slow to join in such a personal assault, dubbing him, quote, the CIA's most zealous agent. These were the words I chose to head my chapter on him in a Feshrift collection of writings in his honor. One of his main initiatives was asking a Dutch colleague and myself to join him in founding a publishing house in Amsterdam in 1969. It was dedicated to publishing smuggled out books by dissidents in Russian and other languages. This was the Alexander Hetzen Foundation. It was the most prominent publisher of mainstream Samizdat. Other more specialized Western groups published smuggled, book, smuggled books on religious and ethnic minority themes. The most important European center for the handling of Samizdat across the board was Radio Liberty's offices in Munich. Here, the dedicated researcher Peter Dornan compiled a systematic archive and gave documents the minimal processing needed for them to be sent back into the USSR through radio broadcasts. In the USA, support for dissent was slow to take off. In 1973 only, Ed Klein and Valery Chelidze put matters on a systematic basis for the first time by starting to publish the Chronicle in Russian and also a magazine, Human Rights in the Soviet Union, with Chelidze as the editor-in-chief. The political abuse of Soviet psychiatry had risen in importance in the USSR when Nikita Khrushchev wanted to announce that Stalin's terror had now truly ended and no political prisoners remained in the forced labor camps. In 1959, he cynically explained, we can say that now too there are people who fight against communism, but clearly the mental state of such people is not normal. At first, relatively few dissidents were locked up in mental prisons, but the numbers increased, and in 1971, the young dissenter Vladimir Bukovsky sent me a packet of remarkable documents. These were 10 official psychiatric reports on dissidents by some of the most powerful Soviet psychiatrists. 
the reports deployed the phony theory that the dissidents suffered from sluggish schizophrenia, pialachikushio schizophrenia, that they were also dangerous and had to be imprisoned and treated. In a thoughtful covering letter, Bukowski asked world psychiatrists to study the materials he attached and decide for themselves whether or not the psychiatric reports contained enough scientific evidence to point to the illnesses cited and also to necessitate the isolation of the individuals from society through imprisonment. In the UK, 44 psychiatrists signed a reply that appeared in the press and reached this conclusion. On the basis of evidence contained in these reports, the undersigned psychiatrists feel compelled to express grave doubts about the legitimacy of compulsory treatment for the people concerned and indefinite detention in prison mental hospital conditions. It seems to us that the diagnoses were made purely in consequence of actions in which they were exercising fundamental freedoms. Over the next 12 years, a fierce conflict raged between representatives of world psychiatry and their opposite numbers in Russia, who repeatedly tried to legitimize their phony official theory. Documenting much of this conflict were two books by the psychiatrist Sidney Block and myself, which appeared in 1977 and 83. In due course, the Soviet psychiatric leaders realized that their professional society was about to be expelled from the World Psychiatric Association and decided to avoid some of the humiliation by resigning from the WPA first. This was a moral and political victory for decent psychiatry. In 1989, some very partial reforms of corrupt aspects of Soviet psychiatry at last took place. However, serious problems have remained ever since, above all the fact that the leadership of Russian psychiatry has remained in the hands of the old school. This has meant that no serious reform of the system has taken place. None of the thousands of its abused victims have had their reputations restored. No abusers have been tried or punished, and new cases of abuse still occur from time to time. Finally, as regards most of the basic human freedoms, Mr. Gorbachev initiated some partial reforms in the wake of his pardoning of the famous dissident Andrei Sakharov in December 86. Considerable freedom of speech, the press, religion, personal movement, and even political choice were then introduced. But Gorbachev and his close colleagues soon lost all popular support and authority, and in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, splitting into 15 independent republics. This brought to pass my prediction of 1967, reiterated several times since then. The prediction held, as you may remember, that the communist regime was weaker than it looked, was rigid in its ways and its structure, would not therefore be able to evolve in a stable way, and would eventually collapse. I would be happy to have discussions and um, contradictions. <laughs> and Very good. Thank you.
Well, I would ask Peter predictions about uh, New Hampshire going forward, but it seems that uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if he's going to be fortunate enough to be on the right side of history more, uh, uh, more than once. But um, um, this was really just a compelling book and a fascinating memoir of your experiences in the Soviet Union. Um, and it raises lots of questions from my perspective, as I've mentioned to you at our discussions. Uh, thanks to Carl Gershman and the National Endowment for Democracy, I managed to meet virtually everyone in this book uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, try to uh, find a way for them to kind of thrive and uh, adapt to a different system. But I want to start with the, the idea that you mentioned that uh, your ex expulsion from the Soviet Union, as it were, allowed you to be free. But obviously, all these people in the Soviet Union were there. So when you wrote these articles and you uh, began talking about the situation in the Soviet Union, um, did, were you, how did you decide who to mention and how careful were you so that they would not get into further trouble? Obviously, to become a dissident meant not only to kind of become prominent, but obviously attacks on your whole family would also result. Uh, not only would you lose your job, but your family would lose your job, and there were other consequences that came from declaring oneself a dissident. So what was your strategy, kind of knowing that you couldn't go there, but there were still people, the people that you were talking about were still in that system and had to somehow survive? Well, this dilemma was made a little easier by the fact that almost all dissidents wanted their fate and their writings to be made public. Mm -hmm. And they were going to take the consequences and sometimes, as you say, their families had to take consequences as well. Although that wasn't, it, usually it was relatively mild consequences for the families. But still, it could be, could be very nasty. Um, so that's the, um, that's the first thing. Getting stuff out uh, from dissidents, news about the persecution of them, their writings, etc. This was a very big thing, and uh, it was difficult. And the sort of way that I went about it was to try to find people who were going anyway and were also sympathetic to the idea of helping people like dissidents. And those sort of people were often uh, academics or journalists, Western journalists, uh, sometimes graduate students, um, people of that sort. And they, I was sort of gratified. At first, it was difficult to get people interested because the view was that this this wasn't, this was doubtful. Uh, even if it was true, it was sort of marginal. But gradually, people began to see that it was not only true, but also important. And so they were prepared to help. And over, as time went on, more than I expected. So um, that's in a nutshell. Well, let's open I'm, let's hold up to questions here. So Bruce. And we're going to get a microphone to you. And 
I ask that uh, you focus on the question and not on the preliminary statements uh, in uh, helping us get through this discussion. Bruce. Um, I'm Bruce Parrott from uh, SICE. I want to thank you, Peter, for a splendid presentation, which gave me lots of flashbacks to past years. Um, and I'm, I just must read the book as soon as possible. I have a couple of questions, um, one easy and one I think more difficult. Uh, the easy one has to do with the uh, dissemination of the ideas of dissidents by uh, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, and uh, other uh, government or quasi-governmental agencies. Um, my impression on the basis of unsystematic study is that this was a very even-handed process and that uh, the U.S. did not favor uh, dissidents who had views more compatible with the views of mainstream views in the United States. And so my question is, is that an accurate assessment? The uh, second question has to do with um, the relevance of uh, the work you did to Russia today. Um, how has the Putin regime changed the um, ideological approach, if you will, to dissent? And is it um, more durable than the Soviet Union turned out to be? Uh, and in, in final observation about predictions, a key question about predictions is, when did you say they were going to come true? Um, <laughs> in the case of the United States, for example, we have had a lot of uh, events recently which no one would ever have predicted. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you, Bruce. Um, certainly, the question of how much Western radio stations and publications would publicize the writings of Soviet dissidents had nothing to do with the attitude of the individual Russians uh, to, the, to the American political system. Most of those Russians knew very little about the American political system anyway, because it wasn't easy to, to, to get to know um, anything in any detail. So you're quite right, that's not a difficult question. Um, now, the relevance of what I've been talking about to today, this is complicated. And um, has there been a change in the ways that um, Putin handles it as compared to the way the Soviets handled it? Yes, there has been a change. Um, it's not as uh, ferociously uh, suppressive uh, today as it was in the Soviet period. Certain freedoms exist, at least in part, notably the freedom to emigrate. And um, you can pretty much, anybody can do that uh, in the, under the Putin regime up to now, at any rate. Um, maybe a few minor exceptions, but not really. Um, so it is less ferocious. There is no ideology in, in Putinism. Uh, there's nothing equivalent, there's no equivalent of Marxism-Leninism. And that makes life uh, less repressive 
than it was in the Soviet period for Soviet dissidents. Um, on the other hand, sort of on the more negative side, there is a tremendous lack of political freedom in Russia today. The little bits that there are are in the localities, in uh, uh, cities or regions, and uh, even there it has to be done very cautiously. At the all-union level, there are no, uh, there's no real freedom of political parties. If any political party tries to do anything serious, they quickly get zapped. Um, so does that pretty much answer the question? There are pluses and minuses. Uh, well, there are, there are pluses and minuses as regards whether things have got better or worse compared to the Soviet period. Uh, they haven't really got worse. It, it, uh, they, uh, they haven't really got worse. They've, uh, in general, got got less bad. Um, that's good. Uh, we, we won't ask you for predictions for 2024 there either. So, <laughs> right here in the front, we'll get to a microphone. Uh, thank you. Uh, Voice of America Russian Service, Daniela Galparoshi. Just very short before I ask you a question, yes, your book means a lot for many people here. And when I'm seeing the pages, I see the familiar faces with, I, with whom I started like 30 years ago in Dissident Bulletin, Everyday Glasnost. Uh, my question is, can you, is, it is a broad question about the role of foreign broadcasts for Russian dissident movement and for, for changes in Russian political system and society. Uh, do you think that this role was high? And uh, if you compare, like, uh, American broadcast, Voice of America, Radio Liberty, Radio Free, with BBC Russian service, Deutsche Welle, and other, um, and do you see any role for foreign broadcast now? Because we now see BBC Russian service publishing inside information from Kremlin uh, and being actually punished for that. We we have uh, Voice of America programs. We have... So everything is in place. So do you see any role for, for us now? Yeah. Um, in my opinion, in the Soviet era, there was a tremendous role for foreign broadcasting, uh, and particularly by uh, Voice of America Radio Liberty, uh, BBC, uh, Deutsche Welle, uh, those were the main ones. And it was a colossal role because this jamming system did not work uh, terribly efficiently. It worked in big cities uh, somewhat more efficiently, but you only had to go outside big cities by about 10, 15 miles, and you could hear virtually without jamming. Um, so it got through, and the dissidents and their, their friends and sympathizers listened a lot to Western broadcasts. So the role was very great, and um, the ones that were most attuned to Soviet internal affairs uh, Radio Liberty was the most attuned of all because that was its assigned job. Um, 
EDC to a fair extent, but not because that they had a Russian service. So that gave it a special a special job. Um, now you asked about the situation today. The amount of radio broadcasting in Russian language has gone down a lot. And um, I have not done a careful study of that, but my impression is that it's gone down quite a lot. And that um, the role today is not as great because, as I said, you can come out of uh, Russia today and live abroad if you want without difficulty. And uh, so that that reduces the urgency of the need for foreign broadcasting. Um, that said, there is still a, a, a considerable need because the internal, particularly TV um, broadcasting in Russia today is very, very um, biased very, very biased by the Putin regime. And that has got tended to get worse over in recent years rather than better. And um, so there will always be a need to combat uh, that, this uh, degree of um, censorship, which is quite high, not as high as it was in the Soviet period. Okay, so so we're going to take a lot of we're going to take three questions at a time. So you have to keep your questions short. I promise at least two rounds. Uh, hopefully we'll get a third. We'll go a little bit over, but I do want Peter to get, get a chance to talk afterwards with the signed book. So Carl Wayne and in the back, right here. Thank you, and Peter. Uh, first, you know, I just want to thank you for everything you've done. You were always a, a guide and a lodestar for someone like myself trying to learn about these issues. Um, Following up on the first question, could you just reflect perhaps on um, compare the people that you were, the dissidents that you're writing about with some of the post-Soviet activists, some of whom were murdered, like Polikovskaya, uh, Stamarova, Nemtsov, but many of them are still active. And if you could just sort of reflect on how, how they compare to the people you're, you're writing about. Uh, and second, uh, looking to the future. I mean, um, you know, do you see a brighter future for uh, Russia ahead? Um, we recently had a visit by uh, uh, Leonid Gosman, uh, who, is a, who is a dissident himself today. Uh, and uh, he was just saying he actually used the term revolutionary situation. You know, Levada polls show uh, deep, um, you know, unhappiness with the... Uh, uh, with the current, uh, with the current government, uh, Gosman said that you talked about emigration before. Um, that fifty-three percent of young people, aged eighteen to twenty-four, want to leave um, Russia today. There's just no hope there. Do you see a, a future, a brighter future for Russia? We're going to take a bunch of questions okay. together, and okay. Carl gets a pass. But please, uh, questions and no, no statements. <laughs> uh. Wayne Mary, uh, Peter, thank you very much for your presentation. I look forward very much to, to reading the book. There was one group who dealt with dissidents that you didn't mention in your remarks you made in your book, and I'd like to ask you to speak about, and that's diplomats. Uh, I can't 
say what it was like in the 60s or 70s, but when I arrived in Moscow in early 1980 uh, for my first assignment, the, the American embassy had several people uh, in different parts of the embassy, not in the CIA station, who dealt with dissidents either in part-time or whole, full-time. Uh, so there would be a total of perhaps five or six officers of the American embassy uh, who were dealing with dissidents, which in, would include religious dissidents, national dissidents, Jewish refuseniks, and so forth. And then if I think of the other Western embassies, most of whom would only have one or at most two people doing this, I would say there were about a dozen Western diplomats at any given time who were available to dissidents uh, and, uh, and who spent a good deal of their time reporting to their governments through official channels uh, about, about what dissidents were saying and doing and giving them that kind of Western, uh, at least, obs observation. So I, I wonder if, if that's in the, if, if you talk about that at all in the book. And in the back. Right there, yeah. John Martin, research fellow here at Wilson. In the, 19, in the late 1950s, my aunt and uncle visited as tourists in the Soviet Union and found themselves extensively interviewed by the CIA when they returned. And I'm wondering what your relationship was with the CIA was over these years. Okay. You can adapt that to British experiences as well. <laughs> Sorry, go now. Yes, you can. Um, uh, I didn't have much relationship with the CIA. Um, uh, I knew one or two people who worked for it, and um, but I certainly didn't um, have any reporting function or anything of that sort. And I thought that it was it would be very potentially dangerous for dissidents I was in touch with to have anything of that sort. Uh, but I didn't actually feel the need for it because I, through the channels that I described, um, I had very good connections of my own. And um, that was much better because I could, I knew who to, who to trust and who not to trust. And that would not have been so easy, I don't think, with CIA. But um, I, I don't really know. Wayne, Mary, um, diplomats, um, it's very interesting what you say. I knew, know very little about what you said because I didn't ever have uh, that sort of contact. I was still uh, expelled from the Soviet Union uh, up until 1988, um, the time you were there. And I didn't actually, what you say surprises me that there were you know, a total of maybe 12 diplomats who were seriously uh, interacting with dissidents and um, talking with them and reporting uh, what they had to say back to their home offices. Um, I mean, I, I sort of knew that something of that sort was going on, but how much and how good the quality was, I didn't know. And uh, how much the uh, KGB tried to manipulate that, uh, you know, they probably did. But, um, Carl uh, Gershman, um, compare the distance in the in the Soviet period with the post-Soviet. 
a lot in common, a lot in common. Um, so I knew Litvinenko um, very well, remarkable man. Um, I knew Politkovsky a little bit. Uh, I've known one or two others. They are sort of motivated by similar feelings. They they want the truth to be told, uh, particularly when it involves people's um, social, economic, and political beliefs and, and views. Um, and so they they agitate for that, and they uh, they have agitated, and it's been eas easier to agitate in the in the Putin era, but uh, there have been some horrible exceptions uh, of. Um, Dissidents been been murdered, and um, so quite a lot in common, but but some differences. Is the future going to be brighter? Gosman is not the person I trust the most. Uh, he attacked me strongly in print uh, for one of my articles because I dared to criticize Chubais, and Chubais was his. Uh, close colleague. He worked. He worked for Jubais, and um, that's possible that very recently that might have changed. I don't know, but I hadn't heard that it has. Um, but to talk about a revolutionary situation in Russia today seems an exaggeration. Um, it's not to say that there couldn't come uh, some sudden changes. Uh, Putin could get. Uh, pushed out, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he would be replaced by anybody better. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not super pessimistic about the future, but I'm not very optimistic. Put it like that. Sorry if that seems like wriggling out of the, <laughs> uh, out of a, uh, <laughs> a definite answer, but I'll leave it at that. Okay, last questions. So, here and here. And please, please, a question, no, no statement. Upon the collapse of the Soviet Union, do you think that there was a, a, a moment of opportunity for things to get better? And do you think it was wasted? And if so, by whom? Okay, and one last question, gentleman who had his hands up right here. Yeah. Uh, my name is Serge Schmeyman. I also spent a few years in the Soviet <laughs> Union. And I must say, Peter, you were one of the people to whom I'm very grateful for all the reporting you did in those days. Um, and of course, you, know, you were right to predict that the Soviet Union would collapse, and you were right to find great moral strength and among the dissidents. Uh, but my question ever since then has been whether there was a connection. How? great a role did all these dissidents have in the collapse of the Soviet Union? Did they have any, apart from maybe mobilizing uh, people in the West and creating certain things like uh, Helsinki Watch? Thank you very much, Serge. Very nice to, uh, I'm not sure we've ever met, but <laughs> we've, we've corresponded, and uh, I have been very grateful to you for your publishing activities and. Uh, your insights, which have been very great. 
I expected you to speak with a French accent, but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me reply to Serge Schwimmer first. Um, what role did distance play in the collapse? This is a fascinating question, and uh, undoubtedly will be books written about it. And um, my new book has a little bit on that sort of subject. But um, uh, I've recently been reading the enormous big book by Bukowski um, called Judgment, Judgment in Moscow. And it was originally written about 12 years ago. It's only just recently come out in English. And he, as you probably know, he studied very, very closely the archives in Moscow of some of the top institutions, including um, some of the Politburo meetings. And he, 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 um, he brought back uh, Xerox, uh, not, not Xerox copies, but another form of copy. Um, and he used those as the basis of this book. What astounded me was the frequency and detail in which the, with which the Politburo and other top government bodies, but especially the Politburo, discussed the dissident, dissident situation. Um, what had happened, what had been done, what, what should the authorities do in response? Um, these discussions went on for an hour or two at a time, and, and quite frequently. So that was amazing to me. And it suggested that um, the authorities were very worried about dissent. And I mean, I, I think that the fact that they were worried and that they saw that there was serious opposition, that that opposition was supported in the West, meant that the extent to which they suppressed dissent was nasty, but it was not completely intolerable. Dissent continued, even after 19, it got really bad after 1979. Uh, the last five or six years, but even then, it was not completely impossible. So, I think that the amount of of opposition and and dictatorship would have been worse without dissent. Um, I think I've answered your question. Right. So, oh, I, I want you to get have an opportunity, Peter, to yes. sign your book. So, quick, thirty wait, seconds wait, on lost opportunities. Wait, yes. Yes. <laughs> lost opportunities. This is a very interesting, another very interesting question. Thank you for it. Um, I think that um, there were opportunities for the system in the so in Russia to get better after the collapse of communism. Uh, I think that to a considerable extent they were wasted. Um, I think that the wrong path was taken uh, in various regards, particularly as regards the uh, economic system and also the political one to some extent. The idea that was espoused by uh, uh, Anders Osland and the uh, World 
thank guy. Um, sorry? No, Jeffrey Sachs. No, no, no. The, 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 him to some extent, but Pfeiffer? Stanley Fisher. No. Not all of them. Uh, <laughs> the one who writes writes in the Post, Washington Post. Who? Louder. What? Don't be afraid. <laughs> no, the one lady behind you was. Oh, you don't know. Oh, okay. I see. Sorry. Um, Lawrence Summers. Lawrence Summers. Ah, yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Osland and Summers led a very strong charge that Russia should go over instantly and radically to a um, capitalist economy and that this should be done uh, with tremendous determination and I think this was a terrible mistake and I thought so at the time and I criticized them at the time and they were very, un very angry with me. Um, you remember? <laughs> okay. Um, so I think that was a mistake because it's a misunderstanding of how societies change. They don't just change overnight. You, they don't, um, people don't suddenly change their views. Uh, so it was bound to, to go wrong, and it did go wrong. And the 1990s were a dreadful time um, in which Yeltsin was a, was a terrible ruler, in my opinion, made all sorts of serious mistakes, and, um, and he got drank more and more. And towards the end of the 90s, Russia was almost falling apart. Um, and then Putin came in, and there was a need for somebody to restore some order, because there was very little order in Russia at the end of the 90s. But that gave him a chance to do what he wanted to do, which was to uh, install a system that would, was in the mode of the KGB, and um, not, 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 not fanatically so, but uh, to a nasty degree so. So there we are. Okay, well, Peter, thank you so much for the presentation. Thank you for coming back to the Kennan Institute. It's always good to have you here at the Kennan Institute. The book is available outside for purchase and for signing right here. So thank you all for coming. Thank, thank you very much, everybody.